Philippians chapter 1. Again, it's good to see everyone here today. I know that uh, many of our folks have been without power, and especially up towards the northeast section, and even some in the south, and uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we do have showers and uh, in, the, in the restrooms here for a simple fee of a lot of money. But anyway, if you want to come by and use this, let us know. We have water here, and so far, although um, you never know. Uh, so glad for God's protection, and uh, so we can give him thanks for that. God has begun a good work in you, and we've talked about that. He's done a good work in me. He's doing more and more all the time. And last week, we used this scripture, and I want to, again, address it for us, because we need to grab hold of some things this morning that will enable us to withstand this day, to go ahead with walking in Jesus in a time when the uh, pressures are coming in from every side. But Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, says, <clears throat> I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes to Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The verse that we've been looking at is verse 6 of that passage. Let me read it in three different uh, translations for this, three different English translations of this verse. One is the ISV, International uh, Standard Version. It says, I am convinced of this, that the one who began a good action among you will bring it to completion by the day of the Messiah, Jesus. Good action, I like that. It's, it's begun a good work, but it's an active work. It's not just something behind the scenes. There's something that God's doing in you, Paul says to this church. The Living Bible says it this way, and I'm sure that God who began the good work within you will keep right on helping you grow in his grace until his task within you is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. Now we know that Jesus Christ hasn't returned yet. We look up saying, Lord, even so come quickly. But that means until he comes back, until we see him coming in the clouds, we know that he is coming back, he will return. But until that day, he's got something to do in me and in you. He's got something, a good work to complete, to help us understand all that he wants to do in us. Well, I like the message as well. The message paraphrase, it's not a translation, but a paraphrase. It says, every time it crossed my mind, I break out an exclamation of thanks to God. Each exclamation is a trigger to prayer. I find myself praying for you with a glad heart. I'm so pleased that you have continued on in this with us, believing and proclaiming God's message from the day you heard it right up to the present. There has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you will keep at it and bring it 
to a flourishing finish on the very day Christ Jesus appears. God's got something for us, continues to have something, and he's still going to be working on it, working on us. And one of the ways that works in us, and one of the ways that God does that is through our situations, experiences we come across, uh, the events along the way. Because it's in those places that we learn. It's those places where God begins to teach us. Um, I, I remember all the different journeys of my life. And the other day, I was with my three other brothers and their sisters are all around the world. And they got in on some way that we're all talking together, can see each other from Japan to Cincinnati to Colorado and all those places around the world. We're all, but the brothers are talking about growing up with dad. Growing up with dad, my therapist said I'd soon be over it. Not really. But, but we were all talking about what it was like to work in the plumbing business with dad. But it started me thinking about those times when I was trained to do something and then I had to do it myself. Um, grew up learning how to dig a proper ditch. Oh, by the way, I want to put my disclaimer ahead of all this. That was 45 years ago, 50 years ago. I know nothing about plumbing. Do not call me. Do not ask me for my opinions. I have opinions, but I'm not going to give them to you. They won't be free anyway. <laughs> anyway, but when I was a kid, going back to the time when I was a kid, there I am, how to dig ditches properly by someone who said, get down there and dig it right. All right, dig it some more. And then came the day as I walked along and got out of high school, got out of college, that I would work with other experienced journeymen who would teach me things. But then came the day that I got the call by myself Go fix this uh, problem in this house. And here I am. Some of you remember those days when that first time you had to do it by yourself. And I remember pulling my truck up to the, in the drive and say, oh, no, I hope I can remember what I'm supposed to do here. There was a flush valve in one of the toilets in the house. And I remember with all the confidence I could muster, I don't have the other guy with me anymore. It's me. Knock on the door. And I'm sure I was probably 23, 22, 23. I think I'd started shaving by then. But I accidentally said, <coughs> I, 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 I know what I'm doing, you know. Come into the house. And the lady said, sure, come right back here. Here's the problem. And then I went in there and closed the door. Now, anybody, I, I don't want to be too graphic here. But if you're going to work on a toilet, you get on your knees to do that. But mine was prayer. <laughs> I'm going to say, Lord, help me do this. Anyway, it all worked out. Everything flushed okay. Everything's fine. Okay. But I remember that event because life brings you to places that you have thought you learned, and then you had to apply what you learned. God's no different in my spiritual life. He teaches me things from his word, and then I need to walk it out, and I need to do that because God's work in me is such that I learned to trust him. I learned to walk by faith. I learned to be led by the Holy Spirit of God who lives with me. Remember, I, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives with me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So all that action that God's doing inside of me is so that my mind, my emotions, my choices, my will begin to respond according to his plan and his way. And circumstances will come in your life and in mine to cause us to learn in that way. God is working in us. It's an ongoing journey. There'll be experience after experience, life event after life event, that God will say, Jim, I want you to learn me, uh, to know me and how to respond to this place. Some of those are big failures along the way. Didn't do well at all. 
Some of them have been successful. I said, yes, Lord, thank you. I got it. I did it. Until the next time I said, what was that again? Okay, this is how I do this. God is working in us. I hope you have not been confronted with this terrible theology. Theology is a God doctrine. It's about all the teachings about God, a theology. I hope you haven't been confronted with this one. If you have, I want to attack it right now. And it's this one. About, it's been a number of years ago, but I was somewhere, and a pastor said to me, he said, I believe that God started the world like someone would spin a top. He'd spin the top, and the top was spinning around there, and he said, I'll come back when it stops spinning. He said, I don't believe that God even cares if you have a flat tire. I don't think God cares if your refrigerator just broke down today. I don't think God's anywhere near us in the fact that he's, he's distant now. He, he doesn't care about anything that you, he spun the top, he said, go for it, do your best, when it stops spinning, I'll come back. This was a pastor. I said, what are you talking about? There's nothing based in the Bible or experiences in the Bible or anything in Scripture that says anything along that line. The thing I thought about later was, here's a man who changed his theology, possibly, I'm not sure how he got there, that said, I prayed about it, it didn't work the way I thought it should work, therefore I'm convinced God doesn't care either. And that's bad theology. Now, I know the children of Israel came to that same position, and maybe some of you as well. Does God really care about where I am right now? And I want to tell you right now, from the beginning, from the word of God, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He has not left you alone. He is here right now to make it happen. Do I have a couple amens on that? You've understood that. Please, if you get that thing going around your head, and we're going to come to it in Scripture, where even the children of Israel said, I don't think God's with us. And it's a lie of Satan that says God is so far distant, he doesn't care about you. Okay? We've got to understand this. That that theology or that thinking about God is said, well, it just doesn't work. And so, therefore, my opinion is that he doesn't care. Well, my opinion is you weren't listening very well because he does care for you. In the children of Israel... In their journeys, and we've been looking at that over and over again, that we understand that God led them along their journey. When you remember and consider your journey, and you see what God did back here, then you move that into your present and even on into your future. If God did this, and God is doing this, he will continue to do this. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we can trust him in that. God is at work in us. Numbers 33, and then we go back to that, that chapter. We can go there now, Numbers 33. There is a record given in the Bible of a journey, a journey of the children of Israel. Beginning of verse 3, it lists town after town after town, desert area, town, oasis, experiences along the way. These are specific geographic places. In their world, because names have changed and hands have changed throughout the centuries, we're not quite sure where all of them are, 
on the geographic ground, but there are many that they can still find today. But for the children of Israel, this was an accurate account and record of where they traveled. And in those, we have looked at several of them. We've looked at some of those. And the reason God put this in Scripture, I believe, is that they would be able to fulfill Deuteronomy chapter 6, where he said, you teach these things to your children and your children's children. You talk about them along the way when you get up and when you lie down. You talk about what I have done for you, and you continue to pass it on to the next generation. You talk about what God has done in your life. So the first part of all this is that you remember and you talk about it. You bring it to, to the front of your thinking. And then the second part of it is you learn from it. 1 Corinthians 10 says, these things are examples. They're warnings for you. What happened to the children of Israel that you would not fall into the same difficulty and sin that they did. Uh, by the way, this is not a Rick Steves vacation video. Anybody know who Rick Steves is? Okay. There are a lot of different travel, uh, cable things, YouTube travel of people. But Judy and I were saying, you know, it'd be nice to go to Ireland someday. Well, we said, well, let's see what Rick Steve has to say. And we watched all his Irish places. He went here, saw this and all that, saw the thing. And then we got done. He said, well, we don't have to go. We just saw it all. <laughs> Save our money. We'll go. This is not like that. These are actual events that people's lives were affected by what went on. If you're in Numbers 33, go down to verse 8 and to verse 15. This is where we have looked already. Um, verse 8, they left uh, Pi Hagaroth and passed through the sea into the desert when they had traveled for three days in the desert of Etham. They camped at Mara. Now, we talked about Mara. That was the place where the waters were bitter. And if uh, God told uh, Moses, throw uh, this wood in there, and the waters were made sweet, and God healed the waters. They had water to drink, and it was that place that God said, I'm the God that heals you. A very amazing story in Marah. Well, they left Marah and went to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there. And again, we saw God's amazing abundant provision. Verse 8, they're at Marah. They don't have water to drink here. They have 12, 12 springs of water. They have 70 trees. It's a place of provision for them and everything they needed. Verse, thir um, verse 10, they left Elam and camped by the Red Sea. They left the Red Sea and camped in the desert of Zin. Zin. We talked a little bit about that. We talked a little bit about what happened there. Where that was the giving of manna, the bread from heaven. That they said, they grumbled and said, God, you're not going to give us, you're going to starve us out here. We don't have bread. We need more bread, and we have to have it. And that was the introduction of manna throughout their wilderness journey. For the next 40 years, they had manna every day, double enough on Shabbat, on Friday night to, Saturday, to Sunday. They had double of that. God provided for them all the way through. And you get to chapter Exodus chapter 30, uh, 16, verse 35, and said they had it all the 40 years that they journeyed. So God did a miracle for them there. In the desert of Zin. We saw that. Continue on in verse 12. They left the desert of Zin and camped at Dovka. They left Dovka and camped at Alush. They left Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. I'm going to talk about Rephidim 
And then I'm going to talk about the next two places. Look at verse uh, 15. They left Rephidim and camped in the desert of Sinai. They left the desert of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hata'ava. Kibroth Hata'ava. Those three places were very significant in their journey. And that's what I've been trying to do is to see what they were learning and how we can apply that into our own lives. Now, the way we're looking at this is going to the actual account of it in that place in the book of Exodus. Go to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17. They saw the desert of Zin where they were there and they got manna. God provided all the manna. Now, in chapter 17, everybody's so quiet. Are you all here? Is everybody here? Okay, glad you're here. <laughs> okay. Chapter 17, Exodus 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Zin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel for me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Chapter 16, they said, you'd want to starve us to death. Now you're going to uh, cause us to die of thirst. No water. Verse 4, then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Oreb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The scripture is clear that they came to a vent that they didn't have water, didn't have enough. They wanted water. They quarreled about it. God says, I'll do it. Uh, but here they're testing me. And they tested the Lord. And that's the question that I addressed earlier, is the Lord with us or not? Doubt came in. Is God really with us? He, I know he's been leading us along every one of these journeys. The cloud by day, fire by night is there. We're being taught this. But here it is. We don't know if he's here. But God did provide water for them. Demonstrated his presence. And God showed up in the midst of that one. Here's the thing, I don't think they, they, they doubt it, and we doubt at times too, but the reality is God was with them. God was right there with them, and they needed to learn that lesson, they needed to grab hold of that. Well, in that condition now, it was so serious that they renamed the town of Rephidim. They called it those two names, you can look down and see it, Massah and Meribah, and the words mean testing and quarreling. So in their journey, they learned every time they think of that place, that's where we quarreled and that's where we were tested. We learned something there, but we got to identify it so we don't forget. That's what happened over there. They tested the Lord. 
Will you trust me? And God provided. But what's interesting is the very next thing that happened was that they were attacked by an enemy, the Amalekites. And their name simply means warlike. They were battling with them. They were confronted by a battle. Let me read it quick and see if you can remember this story. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israels at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But when, whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of the Amalekites from under heaven. And there's more, a little bit more to that story. But what's the principle? The principle is they asked the question, is God with us? He said, let me show you how I'm with you. When the battle comes and my presence is manifest up on the hill, there are people interceding. I've got the staff of the Lord in my hand. God is over us. We're going to be victorious. But when it's down, we're going to lose the battle. But when they come back up, we're going to win the battle. And then he said to Joshua, who's down in the valley fighting, remember, they were slaves. They weren't battle-trained soldiers. They were slaves for, for all that time, and now they're called to fight and do battle in their life. And God provided victory for them. What do I do with that in my life? I have to understand that I have an enemy. That about the time I get out of one experience, there's going to be another one, and the enemy comes in and begins to attack. Don't know how, don't know what to do, but the very presence of God can equip you. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of, in high places. Stand, therefore, in the, uh, with the armor of God on. Get the armor of God in your life. So the principle is there that we need to learn, even in battle, to trust in God and keeping our eyes on God and don't doubt. And I like to be sure you tell this to Joshua. Because he's down in the battle. He doesn't understand all that's going on. But this is what went on. God showed up in the midst of that. Now, in their journey, turn over a page in Exodus to chapter 19. I'm walking you through some of the places that we also can learn from their experience. Exodus 19 and verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, left Egypt on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they had sent, sent, set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. All right, you see the journey? They leave Rephidim. This is where they had no water. Here's where they got victory. God supplied the water. God provided the victory. And now they continue to travel, and they come to the desert of Sinai. Now, if I ask the question, I think most of us, you would know what that is. That was the place in the Sinai, Mount Sinai, where was the giving of the, of the covenant of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of God, the Ten Commandments were given there. 
there's an interesting outline of the book of Exodus because if you're looking at a Bible uh, book, you want to begin to outline where it is. This is chapter 18, 19, where they move to Sinai. <coughs> they don't leave Sinai for the rest of the book. The rest of Exodus is going to talk about their experience right there. Out of all 42 places in number 33, Numbers 33, 42 places are listed. It's probably the 17th or 18th stop that God keeps them there and talks to them about his law. If you want to outline this book, the first 11 chapters are when we learn about Moses. We learn about responding to the call of God. I'm sending you, Moses, back to Egypt. I want you to confront Pharaoh. And so the first 11 chapters of this book, Exodus, he's confronting the, the, uh, with the plagues, all that uh, with Pharaoh in Egypt. Now you get to chapter 12, and verse 14, it talks about their deliverance on Passover. And now the children of Israel are released from the bondage. And then if you begin to chapter 15, 16, 17, and 18, we just read 16 and 17, then it begins to talk about the journeys, and then we get to Mount Sinai, and it stops. So from now on, in the book of Exodus, there the emphasis is all that God taught them at this place. The covenant God began to establish his uh, law, his covenant, his instruction for the children of Israel by which to live and how to live. In the last part, 19 to 24, then 25 to the end of the book, chapter 40, is a blueprint. He said, here's the tabernacle, and here is how you're going to worship me. Here is where it is. And then in the midst of that wonderful part of the law, we could spend the rest of a couple of next weeks on this, these, this section. But in chapter 32 of Exodus, they have the experience where Moses is gone, and they get a golden calf and worship it. Remember, I hope you remember that stuff, where they're looking at the golden calf, worshiping another God in the midst of that. So we're looking at what happens. There are times in your life and mine that God will take you to school. He said, now listen, you've got to study to show yourself the proven of God. You've got to get in the Word. You've got to know the Word, and you're going to learn that. I'm going to teach you that. But in the middle of that, don't give up. Don't begin to look around you now and find something else to worship. You stay right here where I have you for this time period. Go to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, last book, or last chapter, I'm sorry, of this book of Exodus 40, last verses, uh, last verses 46, 36, I'm sorry. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day. Fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Where was God? God was with them, manifesting himself all the way along their journey. That's the final words of the book of Exodus. But that's not the final city that I want to talk about in their journey or their final, that event. I need a big whiteboard so you can follow what I'm talking about. I hope you're grabbing hold of it, all these journeys. I, because Exodus finishes while they're still in Sinai, I want you to go to the book of Numbers uh, and go to chapter 11. 
the book of Numbers chapter 11. Actually, Numbers 10, we'll go there first and then lead into this. This is not the final lesson, but it will be the final one that we will look at. Numbers uh, chapter 10 and verse 11, if you look down to your Bible. Now look, on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. Now that takes us back to the book of Exodus, right? Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest at the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. They begin to travel. They begin to, to, to move out and set out away from there. Verse 11, chapter 11, go down to chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. And fire came out from the Lord, burned among them, and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the place was called Taborah, because fire from the Lord had burned amongst them. Now, go to, I want to go down to verse 4 now. The rabble among them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate at Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. In other words, they came to us. We've seen the provision of manna. We've seen the provision of water. They come here now. They've been with the Lord and seen the wonderful giving of the law and the covenant of Mount Sinai, all the demonstration of God there. And they travel a little bit further, and they say, we're sick and tired of the bread you gave us. We have it every single day. We get it in the morning. We have it for lunch. We have it when we go to bed for a snack. It's all we eat. I want meat. I want my needs met. I want what I want, and this is what I want. Now, go down to verse uh, 18. In response to all this, and by the way, you can read all this and get all the other details of it. He said, tell the people, the Lord says, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Now, that's quite a picture. He said, you're going to have so much quail that's going to come after you for 30 straight days, and you're going to eat so much, and the picture he gives is pretty descriptive. It's, you're going to throw it up. It's coming out of your mouth. It's coming out of your nose. It's coming out of every, because you're going to get enough of this, so you're going to get over your complaining and all this stuff. 
And Moses said, how can this ever happen? I don't believe it can happen, but go down to verse 31. Verse 31. Here's the fulfillment of what God did for them here. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. I'm not big into metrics or cubits, but that was about three feet deep. Two cubits, about three foot deep. Verse 32, all that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers, or, and that was a quantity. They, then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth Hatava because they had buried the people who had craved other food. And then it says they went to another place. The definition of those Hebrew words, Kibroth Hatava, is a place or the graves of gluttony. The graves of craving. It was a people filled with, we want it. A people filled with lust. That's no different than the world we live in right now that many, many people, I hope it's not in this room, but I know it can be, is that we are so filled with our desires that we want what we want, how we want it, and that's the final deal. And if God doesn't give it to us, we're mad. I want what I want. This was something that they needed to face, an issue that had to be dealt with them, that insatiable desire for more. More pleasure, more things. We want meat. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Mark this, verse 1. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, lovers, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. Prophetically, Paul writes to Timothy, he said, there's going to come a day when the mark of that day is going to be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of good. More what they want is what they want when they want it. I think we live in a time when that's it. We're living in a time when people want what they want and they don't care. There is no stopping to what I want. Look at all the people. They're just breaking into stores, taking what they want. They're grabbing hold of stuff. I want more. There are people that are saying, if you're not going to give it to me, I'm taking it. They're, this is a world. Israel is no different. They were facing in themselves something that needed to be dealt with, and that is that spirit of craving, of desire for of lust after something. And God said, you need to deal with this. We're going to deal with this. And you are not going to be happy with the results. 
because this is not good. I learned a long, long time ago this principle in the Word of God, in Proverbs 10, 22. It says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, this is King James, and adds no sorrow to it. You see, I believe if they would have learned the lessons all the way along, they would have seen how God has provided for them, learned how, what God did for them, they would have simply said, Lord, you know, we could sure enjoy some other parts of our diet. And as a good father, he said, well, that's okay. I could provide that for you. No problem. But because of their anger and quarreling and desires, they came to the forefront with that desire and said, I want what I want, and I want it now. And God said, okay, I'll give it to you, but you're going to get to the point where you'll loathe it. I will pour it out on you. You see, I've experienced the blessing of God. You have experienced his blessing. You've experienced what God has given you, and at the end of it, there's no sorrow attached to it. It is just a blessing, and that's Father God's plan, and that's his purpose. Not all the sorrow that comes. They got what they asked for. They got beat. But many people died in that experience. It wasn't what they wanted. To bring all of my desires before the Lord, allowing him to be the blessing giver, I cannot be the blessing demander. I must receive it from him. You see, the journey of life is to learn the lessons, to make a spiritual repair, to know God, to being changed, a good work in you. Rick Renner, uh, a great writer of, of Greek words, he had, he had some statements about these three things, the supernatural provision of God in the wilderness. Listen to this. Some of you have, have uh, maybe have heard this before. He said, let's assume that the Israelites numbered about 3 million people. Most Bible scholars say that they numbered about 3 million children, uh, families, 3 million if that's the case, how much manna was needed to feed the children of Israel in the wilderness? One scholar suggested they need 4,500 tons of manna a day for them to eat that much. And if you take into account that God gave them manna for 40 years, this means it's 65 million, 65 million 700,000 tons of manna supernaturally appeared on the ground over a period of 40 years. Now, that's a lot of bread. God brought it to them. The manna came so regularly, day in, day out, that they probably never thought about it again until they got to say, I'm sick of it. What about the water that they received? How much water did Israel need to have as they traveled? To support 3 million Israelites in blistering hot desert temperatures. And the animals needed water as well. The only available source of water was bitter and undrinkable and Mara. No natural source for that crowd of people. It would probably, to nourish 3, three million people and all the animals, it probably required up to 15 million gallons a day of water. Just to meet their basic needs. It was always critical in desert times. So when Moses, God told Moses to strike the rocks, which we read about already, Moses obeyed, water began to supernaturally flow. And once the water started to flow, it continued to flow and flow and flow, provided all the water needed by the people of God. One week's supply would have equaled approximately 
100 million gallons of water. Now, you'd think that that kind of living in supernatural would change their attitude about God. But they still stressed about him and argued with him. And then you come to quail. This part of feeding them, again, for 30 days, it would probably take at least 90 million quail. If each Israel, Israelite ate only one quail a day, in one month it would amount to 90 million quail. But if there's two quails a day, the total number for 30 days would rise to 180 million quail. That's how many it would have taken to do that. Here's the issue. The phenomena of this miracle could not have happened any other way than God bringing himself into their life and provided them miracle after miracle after miracle. God is a miracle-working God. One last verse, go to Hebrews chapter 3 and we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 3. I won't cover this, but we need to pay attention to it as we wrap up our thinking about God in the journey of it with us. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now here's application to us. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have all come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Don't harden your hearts. Here's the word of God for all of us today. Don't harden your hearts. Walk with him. Allow him to teach you. Bow before him. Give him glory and allow him to teach you all the way along. Don't harden your hearts. He's faithful. Worship team, if you would come. I'm going to ask you to stand again. As I pray, Holy Spirit, have your way in us today. I don't know where every individual is today. As we look at our journey where we are and the stresses, the things that you are confronting us with, some need to know that you're not going to starve them. You're going to provide. You're going to provide all they need. Some are thirsty, and God said, I'll give you a drink. Come to me, and I will give you living water. Come to me. And then the Lord would say to some, deal with your lust. Deal with it. Cut it off. Be done with it. Don't, don't test God by having a lustful heart, cravings, cravings. Allow God to be your source. Holy Spirit, teach us, cause us to grow in this time that we would be all that you've called us to be. Complete your work. Lord, I'm a candidate for that. I think we all are, Lord. We're candidates for you to continue the work you've begun in us until we see you face to face. 
Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you. Never, you said you never leave us or forsake us. We bless you. And we're going to give our hearts to you.